In 2022, the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. Are any of the decisions they made this year as significant? Welcome to The Conquering Truth. I'm Dan Horn. I'm Jonathan Sides. I'm Charles Churchill. And I'm Joshua Horn. As has become tradition, the end of June is when the Supreme Court releases their most significant decisions, or at least the ones they consider their most significant decisions of the year, and this year is no exception. So we thought it was worthwhile to sit and you know discuss some of the decisions that came out. So let's, let's start with the one about affirmative action, which is Students for Fair Admissions, Inc., versus the President and Fellows of Harvard College. And the synopsis on the Supreme Court website was the admissions program at Harvard College and the University of North Carolina violate the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. I mean, the issue here was, um, you know, it was affirmative action where there where colleges were um, deciding who gets in, who they're going to allow in um, based on race to meet certain, you know, certain uh, percentages you know, to have their student body be so many percent black, so many percent white, et cetera, you know, where they're not considering uh, the things that they would typically consider things like, you know, uh, the, their test scores, uh, things like that. They're going to give students that score lower preference because of their race. And so this was, you know, really helping black students, really hurting Asian students, hurting white students some as well. And so now that is been deemed unconstitutional. And I mean, when you look at what they deemed unconstitutional, it's actually pretty narrow. Because basically, when they would get their applications in, they would evaluate them on grades and they'd evaluate them on you know, extracurricular activities, legacy, you know, if their family had other people that went to Harvard, they got in, or they got points for that, and then race. And so basically, it's saying that they can't use race at that first tier. It doesn't mean that you can't use race-related things in lower tiers. It's just in that first initial sort that you can't do it, which is where they were doing it now. And so, you know, people want to make out this being a really big deal, but it's easy enough to bypass it if you want to. It's not like a the, the ruling can't easily be ignored. It can pretty easily be ignored. They just have to change their process so that it looks like they're ignoring race. They don't actually have to ignore race. I, mean, I think they, I heard they were – Colleges were already having workshops on how they're going to change the admission. So they're going to have, you know, an essay question of, you know, explain how, you know, oppression has impacted your life. And now they can use that, which is not race, but, you know, you can't say that you're being discriminated against on by your race as a white person. That's just not going to fly. So now you kind of have this proxy for race with this new essay. And that brings a really interesting point because – you know, when they write a decision, the decision, I think, in this case was 40 or 45 pages long. And then they write a couple page synopsis, one of the clerks for the Supreme Court does. In the in the what the Supreme Court clerk said regarding that issue in the synopsis was because Harvard's and UNC's admissions program lacks sufficient focus and measurable objectives, warning the use of race unavoidably employ race in a negative manner, involve racial stereotyping and lack meaningful endpoints. Those admission programs cannot be reconciled with the guarantees of the Equal Protection Clause. At the same time, nothing prohibits universities from considering an applicant's discussion of how race affected the applicant's life, so long as that discussion is concretely tied to the quality of character and unique ability that that particular applicant can contribute to the university. 
Many universities have, for too long, wrongly concluded that the touchstone of an individual's identity is not challenges bested, skills built, or lessons learned, but the color of their skin. This nation's constitutional history does not tolerate that choice. And so in here, it's, it's like pushing them towards doing exactly what you said. You know, if you just write an essay saying challenges bested, skills built, lessons learned that were affected by the color of their skin without saying, but it was because of the color of my skin, then you get, you get a pass. But that's not what the decision said. The decision is a lot more explicitly saying you can't do that. And the decision, it says, but despite the dissent's assertion to the contrary, universities may not simply establish through application essays or other means the regime we hold unlawful today. A dissenting opinion is generally not the best source of legal advice on how to comply with the majority opinion. What cannot be done directly cannot be done indirectly. The Constitution deals with substance, not shadows. And the prohibition against racial discrimination is leveled at the thing, not the name. A benefit to a student who overcame racial discrimination, for example, must be tied to that student's courage and determination. Or a benefit to a student whose heritage or culture motivated him or her to assume a leadership role or attain a particular goal must be tied to that student's unique ability to contribute to the university. In other words, the student must be treated based on his or her experience as an individual, not on the basis of race. So the synopsis almost reads like they can write an essay that just says that it really affected them and that's good enough. And the decision itself is like, no, that doesn't work. So it's very interesting that the the position of the court, which is what the – I mean the actual decision is what was written by a justice and then the other justice concur with it. But the synopsis, which is written by the staff of the court – is like pointing the universities in a way that the decision told them that they couldn't do, which is really weird just because it's kind of inconsistent. And it's interesting because in one sense, there's a part of it where I think people, when you read what was being opposed, people, there were some people who kind of went, but that's the whole point of affirmative action. I'm drawing a blank on the name of the decision 20 years ago that they were basically overturning, but that decision they wrote, well, we need to do this now, but in 25 years, this should be eliminated. And so there, so this is all the Supreme Court making ruling. decisions right. that are not based on law. It's just the Supreme Court dictating law for the country, right? Because the Constitution would say you can never do that, right? So I mean, it's it's it is interesting as you see this because the 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 actual the actual decision that was written really puts some tight constraint. I mean, like you said, it can still be gotten around, but they're effectively saying you're you shouldn't try to game the system. Right, but, the but thing at the is, same time, they're indicating game the system. Right, it's, it's, I mean, how are you going to enforce? You know the, oh. how how they're judging the essays, and they could do it. They could just say, "Well, we're going to as you can sue the college and say, look, they're um, they're they are letting in too many black people, and you know, look at their SAT scores. You know, they must have uh, they, they must be not you know." judging the essays correctly. And the courts could start going university by university like they do for uh, congressional districts for the maps and saying, are these fair based on, you know, racial, whatever racial guidelines we've come up with. But, you know, that's a big power grab if they end up doing that. And, you know, at a certain point, how are you, how would you, you know, enforce that in any type of fair way? You know that most universities hold to the idea of systemic racism which means in their eyes, every black has been persecuted. Every black has been subject to, 
to discrimination that has affected them. And they've just to be black in America requires courage. So you can say we want these courageous people. And so with the mindset in the universities, I don't see how this changes anything. Because as long as the mindset in the universities is to be black in America, man, even if you're even if your father was a Supreme Court justice and was black, it doesn't matter. You were black. So you were you were worse off than the poor kid, poor white kid that was in grew up in the inner city. It doesn't matter because you were black. You experienced systemic racism. And as long as that's the mindset in the university, how do you not get them go? This guy showed courage. And, and I mean, for you to write an essay like that, I mean, if you're creative enough, anyone can write an essay about how they experienced, you know, racial hardships or, you know, some hardship like that, you know. And so then how are they judging them? Well, if they have this this ideology that they're already adopting, it's pretty clear how a lot of them would be judging it. Yeah, you're going to create this effectively because of you've got this series of compounded sins, right? I mean, we take the public's money, we're going to spend the public's money on something. Because of the public's money, we're going to say it has to be spent in this particular way. Because, you know, I mean, now we're going to say that we have to favor certain people because of what the public has done in the past. I mean, you have this layer on top of layer on top of layer of wrong view. And now what could actually, like you said, what could really end up happening is the if someone actually, in good faith, created a process and ended up letting in more of a certain race than then the then the statistical distribution is someone else could come in evaluate them and say that they weren't doing it correctly because they ended up with the wrong distribution and and you just end up having none of it's in the seeking of actually doing right it's all just this we, we we're not well, chasing it's, righteousness it's we're, chasing a righteousness that they've formed in their own mind right right the righteousness in their own mind is that blacks were slaves and so therefore we have to make reparations for slavery so therefore they should get into Harvard I mean that's their you know, a summary of their mindset. Right. Well, that this decision isn't going to change that mindset. Right. If you look at what America has done in inner cities, where largely we've said, and a lot of this is political and it's left wing, and the, the left wing says you don't prosecute people for committing crimes, that you allow crime to run rampant. You So that means your schools can't teach anything, which means that the students, I mean, I had a roommate in college that was a black, young black man from I was young then, too. A young black man from Richmond. And, I mean, he coming out, he was a smart kid, but his his education wasn't the same as mine at all. Not on the same scale because he was from inner city Richmond. And, yes, because of affirmative action was the only reason he got in. And it was very damaging to him, by the way, because he couldn't handle the school. Because even though he was a smart kid, he didn't have the background for it. I mean, he was just way over his head. And so you look at those cases and can you say – that racism didn't. It may not be racism, but it is how how we've segregated the races races in this country. How the the left wing tends to target those groups. They target them, and they have targeted them for a long time. And so these have real ongoing things. But I would argue that the Democrats are far more racist historically, and continue to be far more racist than the Dem uh, than the Republicans because they don't <laughs> fix the problem that that actually needs to be fixed. Right? I mean, what needs to be fixed is you need to have law and order. You need to actually like control people instead of just saying, "Well." And I know of cases like this too, where they went. I know of a guy in New York City that he went to this youth program while he was in college, in in the youth program that was like summer work. Half the people were white, half the people were black. Day two, none of the black people show up again, and they get paid for the whole summer. 
Well, as long as you're doing that and teaching people they don't have to work, you're teaching them all kinds of bad examples. Is this racism? Yeah, that's absolutely racism. That's actually hurting people. But a lot of it is this, this we're going to help them because they're incompetent racism, not we're going to be, we're going to cut them off for opportunities racism. The racism in this country, I see much more towards, you know, I think it was George W. Bush's, you know, uh, racism of low expectations seems to me that's the racism that we accept in our country widely. And this, you know, what Harvard's doing is accentuating that. It's not destroying that. And that's what needs to be destroyed. And nothing about this decision is going to affect that worldview. Right. And if that worldview continues to prevail in higher education, you're not going to see a significant shift in demographics. There will just be other means by which you get the quotas that you're looking for. And it's, you know, people want to act like the Supreme Court can make these big shifts. And the Supreme Court makes almost – the shifts that they make are almost always incredibly minor. What the Supreme Court loves to do is get out in front of something that's going in that direction already so that they can look a lot more powerful and influential than they are. Like, you know, the sodomite marriage, it was increasing in popularity. So before it reaches a majority – they pass Obergefell, and they go, you have to allow it. But they saw the direction the culture was going anyway. In this case, they saw the direction that the culture was going, which is people are getting more and more upset about affirmative action. So all they're doing is trying to get out in front of the crowd so that they look like they're power and it's, they're powerful. And it's just this facade of power when their actual ability to influence is pretty limited. So we should look at what the Bible says about this, and we can turn to James 2, verse 9. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. And so clearly Harvard was showing partiality. And they were saying that skin color is a means that you should use to judge people. That's a very dangerous thing whenever you take that direction. I mean, that remember who you know popularized that. That's Hitler, right? Hitler was putting blacks to death before he put Jews to death. I mean, it was he, you know, this idea of judging by skin color but judging by race, that's not new, and it's not something that's associated with people that we look towards right, as righteous. And that's what Harvard was doing. But we shouldn't look towards Harvard as, Harvard as being righteous. They're not a good example of righteousness. I mean, and when, when you have the Bible talking about partiality and you go back and you look at the Old Testament laws, that there are so many of them that are built around not showing partiality. And usually there's two axes that, they, that the Bible specifically mentions – don't be partial to these particular groups. You're not supposed to be partial to the rich or the poor. So wealth is not supposed to factor into your judgments in matters of law. And you're not supposed to be partial to the foreigner versus the native. So they don't. it's not technically race in quite the same sense, but it's, it's a close approximation. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't matter who the person is, where they come from, that the law is the same for one or the other. And so, you know, money doesn't matter. And... National origin doesn't matter. In, in God's eyes, when God sets up an economy out of nothing, he says, don't be partial in these two specific areas. So it, it, there is some complication to it, though, because, um, you know, a college is not, you know, it's, it's different than a courtroom. Because I think if, you know, if we, you know, by, by some strange uh, <laughs> turn of events, decided we were going to open a college and we we're going to open a college for just poor people. You know, that wouldn't be a problem. Uh, because, How about a food pantry? That would be a better right. example. Yeah. 
you have a food pantry and you only hand out food to poor people. Right. In fact, it'd be a good thing to, to <laughs> right. be partial to, to poor people. So, you know, so there is a difference there. Um, but, yeah, you know, I think it, it is, uh, you know, it, I think it is pretty clear that still being partial based on skin color, based on race would be an issue there because, you know, network, you're creating a division in people and in a, in a way that is, is not righteous. And it is complicated by the fact, like Charles was saying earlier, you start piling things up on one another and you have the government that's getting involved in the education system. So Harvard is a private university, but the University of North Carolina, another one of the, the universities named here, they're a public university. And so all of a sudden public funds are at stake and how those are spent. So, you know, that, that does complicate things, but it's complicated because – all of a sudden the government thought, oh, we should be involved in educating right. people. And at Harvard, which is the richest university in the world, they get $1.5 billion from the federal government in terms of student aid and grants and all this stuff. So you know, the government definitely has its ha- hands in, you know, ha- has its money in Harvard. And, you know, I was interested to, you know, why, you know, if, if they talked about why the decision applied to Harvard, even though they were a private university, um, you know, I know, you know, there's a lot of those, you know, the type of racial discrimination stuff that they do apply to businesses. But, you know, I mean, some of that, I think, is definitely definitely taken too far, you know, beyond what was ever intended when the Constitution was amended. Um, but, you know, for the record, I mean, these decisions we're talking about are like prob- I didn't add them up, but they're probably like over a thousand pages. So we, you know, we'll, we'll admit we did not read them all. Some of us didn't even read a small fraction of them. <laughs> One other thing just that's really particular about the verse because, first of all, we believe in our mind that showing partiality in the law is good. I mean, that is an Ameri- I mean, that has become a principle that— You mean America, not, not <laughs> Yes, us not here. us specifically. But like I said, I think there's a lot of people who looked at it and said, this is what the law was intended to do. And I think that, that thinking has become pretty common. But what it also says is it does not say that the way to solve a problem is to start showing partiality in the law. And so when you see—I mean, and it's just— Really specific, because in the end, what we've done is not only do we show partiality in the law, we say because there's been partiality, we have to show even more partiality. We have to adjust the partiality. We have to, and so I mean, it's just really important. This needs to be just completely rejected in the sense that showing partiality in the law not only does it not create it creates injustice, and it and it never ends up causing a balance in injustice. By introducing more more partiality, which that's you know that's the verse that that says you shouldn't show it to the rich or the poor. I mean, the rich right. would be the natural partiality to show you know this guy's going to help me, maybe he'll give me money, whatever. The poor is would be like you know the reverse of that. We were saying, well, we don't want to favor the rich, so we're instead going to intentionally favor the poor. Right. And remember, what's actually happening there is that because legacy is one of the main things that they look at too, they are favoring the rich. I mean, there's no question that they do. And, you know, how much of a problem is that? And part of it is, is that we're trying to do judicial standards to a non-judicial body. Right. And so it might be sin for them, but how much should the government be involved? And somebody made the comment earlier that the government's spending a lot of money at Harvard. What they're doing is they're funding certain research. And now all of a sudden, if you were a private business, there's a real problem that the government buys a service from you, which is basically what they're doing with grants or what they're doing with paying a student's tuition, they're buying services from you, and now they can control how you do everything. You know, they can decide however they want whether to give money to the students, but the issue becomes it's really problematic that the government can dictate these things because, yes, it's sin. I don't deny that it's sin, 
But is that really what the federal government specifically, Harvard's in Massachusetts, and so it would fall under Massachusetts law. But they feel like they have the right to reach into anywhere they want at any time they want. We just need to realize how damaging and destructive it is that, that this decision is even considered seriously at all, because why should the government be able to reach into there? It's not, it's, it's not in their purview. And I think you're going to see this come up throughout the evening. I, mean, I think it's worth spending t- just another minute on is, you know, there's a part of it where people use the phrase the government as if there is only one government. God has ordained a lot of different governmental authorities. There's not just not just civil governments, but I mean, in the sense of the church is a form of government, the family is a form of government. And so there's this part of it where we're going to see over and over again where the Supreme Court is making a decision where they might be reasoning at a case in a logical sense based on what's out there. But what they should have done is said, the Constitution does not give the authority to the federal government to do this at all. This is not allowed, period. And that, and as opposed to the fact of they've accepted sin upon sin upon sin upon sin upon sin and then made some ruling that threads narrowly through all those things, the answer is, is they should have just said, the federal government has no authority to do these things. It is not granted to them by the Constitution. The end. Good night. Other people should be taking care of this. And and you're going to – I think you're going to hear that multiple times throughout the evening. And, I mean, the Supreme Court wants to act like they have all these powers. And it was intended to be the weakest branch of, of the federal government. And the federal government was supposed to be a weak branch. It wasn't supposed to be this, this, this huge colossus that it is now. And so when you look at what the Supreme Court was – determined to be right i mean the the first chief justice of the supreme court he went on vacation for a year after he was appointed chief justice i mean that's how important that they consider the supreme court and now we look at it and we wait with bated breath as to what dictates that they'll tell to the american people to dictate how businesses work and how everything else works and it's it's pretty dangerous when we look at the guarantees of the of the bill of rights as to how far the supreme court has stepped on those guarantees like the right to assemble Right. You have the right to assemble. You have the right to bring people together that you want to be with, that you want to do things with, including, I would argue, education. Right. But we've eliminated that right at the expense of of the perceived purpose of government is to 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 fix racial issues, which is why one of the reasons that racial issues continue so much is because government gets involved and it's it's not created to fix things. It's created to stop sin and to be the avenger of the wrath of God. So the next one that we want to talk about here is Creative LLC versus Ellenis. And the the summary here says, The First Amendment prohibits Colorado from forcing a website designer to create expressive designs, speaking messages with which the designer disagrees. And this one's kind of an interesting one because in this case, so Colorado had passed a law, I can't remember, the past year or two, that basically said that across a wide range of services that the people providing these services cannot discriminate across a whole series of things, race, gender, sexual orientation, in their providing of these services. And so in this case, there wasn't even a particular, this was someone who was actually seeking an injunction against the law being used against them. There wasn't a particular case where they had been, you know, someone had come and asked them to design a website and they had a particular instance. They actually came to the court and said, I see this law being written. I believe this law is going is is written in a way that there is no way it's it's not going to affect me. It is going to impact me just by the nature of the way it's written. And the court actually took up the case. And so it's it's a very interesting case because in most cases you have to have a specific instance of harm as opposed to an injunction against the potential for harm. But the potential for harm was so broad that the court was willing to hear the case. So the master speaks cake shop 
decision was, again, this was somebody who was making cakes, refused to make a wedding cake for a gay couple, and instead, um, you know, got discriminated against, if you will, and basically was, was shut down by the state of Colorado through judicial persecution. I'm, you know, showing my hand here. As that case worked its way through the courts, eventually it makes it to the Supreme Court, and it's decided more or less on a technicality more or less on procedural technicality. There's no broad sweeping things that come out of that. But it's because of what happens there that Colorado is passing all of these other laws. That's my understanding, at least, of the, the order of, of operations there. In this decision, they quote from that decision because, you know, that decision, what they're affirming is the right of Colorado to stop the discrimination. But at the same time, they're kind of going... But we don't know what when it applies. This is from the decision about the Creative LLC. They're quoting from Masterpiece Cake Shop versus Colorado. Civil Rights Commission. States may protect gay persons just as they can protect other classes of individuals in acquiring whatever products and services they choose on the same terms and conditions or as, as are offered to other members of the public. And there are no doubt innumerable goods and services that no one could argue implicate the First Amendment. But they won't say what they are that do. I mean, the decision, it's like a horrible decision because basically what it leaves Colorado up to is because they can go, okay, so how about um, running tuxes? How about, you know, there's they're, they're not setting any standard at all. It's just that in most of what happens in the government is – that the government has a huge amount of money that it can pursue people. Even if they're going to lose in the end, they don't care. Right. The person who gets sued, they care because they lose millions of dollars, and a lot of them don't have millions of dollars. The government spends a million dollars to do it or $2 million, and they don't care. And so what this decision is actually set up is we don't know, but we know that there's cases where this can happen like this case but the rest of them, well, you just have to decide which Colorado has a history. Like in the first case, it was you made it very clear that you went after him because he was you know, a professing Christian. That's why you went after him. That's why they made the decision. That was wrong. That was, And so they don't say anything about whether he could be forced to bake a cake. They just say that their procedure, like you were saying. But now this decision doesn't clarify much at all. I mean, I mean this decision. Are you, asking, are you asking the Supreme Court to write law then? No, I'm saying that that if they're going to make these arbitrary, somewhat arbitrary decisions, they need to give some clarity for how they're deciding things. If they're saying this violates the freedom to practice religion, if they're saying it's violating that, they have to give some basis that they're going to measure this or something instead of leaving it completely nebulous when you already know. They know that Colorado State that they have been very antagonistic towards Christians and towards holding a Christian viewpoint against sodomy, then, but they don't give any anything that's actually going to stop Colorado. Colorado can keep going after people, keep going after people, bring it up to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court will say, okay, in that case also they're not allowed to do it. But there's no standard that stops Colorado from just continuing to pursue people and persecute people because it is a form of persecution what they're doing. The one area they do draw is they do – when they cite the First Amendment, it's that it's something it's something that has an aspect of expression. Is where is where they you know they end up talking about that that there's an expression of, that this isn't like when you mentioned renting tuxes. Is they would say that if you're a place that just 
somebody walks in, you measure them, you put them in a tux, then if you denied someone for that reason, then that would then that would be acceptable. Whereas if you're a place and what you did is you designed a tux to express someone and their personality and who they are, and that that was part of your expression and that you weren't willing to do that in certain cases, then all of a sudden that could come under under fire. So they do define an area, but part of this starts to be the problem of we've defined the First Amendment as freedom of expression as opposed to speech. And, the go- and, they, and they haven't said, because they're not willing to say, that the government doesn't have the, the authority to tell a business that they can't serve someone. And, and there is just – And so because, and they're, they're very explicit here that states that may do, do this, authority. that they do have the authority because they have a – And potentially states do have that authority right, as opposed to the federal government. I mean the one good thing for them is that it's a state doing it because – Right. But because you know, the federal government also prohibits that as well, but you know, right. they have a lot less – Legal, you know, constitutional standing to do it, right? But potentially, the you know, the state would have the authority in that case. But obviously, the federal, but just the thinking is so is so misconstrued. So it's just it always gets very messed up when you hear people talk about it because now we've made the First Amendment cover anything that covers expression, as opposed to the First Amendment isn't the. I mean, the Bill of Rights was not intended to be a specific enumeration of all the rights of the people, and it was supposed to be about debate. And all of a sudden, though, because we've decided to compel behavior all the time, even though slavery in that case is illegal, according to the Constitution, and compelled speech is a form of slavery. Right. And it has been held by the Supreme Court to be a form of slavery. They still say that the state of Colorado has the right to compel things. I mean, it's, it is a problem. Well, compel speech. They say they can't compel they speech. They say they can't consp- compel speech, that they can, but they can compel many other things. Many other services and Mother, labors, right? Right. Many other services. And so, I mean, we've just gotten to the point where we just have to realize where we are as a country, right? I mean, we talk about ourselves being capitalists. We're not. We're socialists. The government considers itself as owning and controlling all the businesses, which is a form of socialism. It believes it owns all the property. Believes it owns all the property. Believes it owns all the education system. And so these decisions are reflecting this attitude that they pretend like they're supporting the Bill of Rights, but they've already eliminated the Bill of Rights, as the founders would have understood it when it was adopted. Right. We should also mention they believe they own all your output because income tax is just saying they get to keep you get to keep a percentage of what you produce. So I mean, we should throw that one in there as well. This is very negative. <laughs> I mean, it's very negative. You're right, but there's there's a sense in which if you if you're out reading about this decision you're going to think that this is a win for conservatives and there's a sense in which they decided the right side but when you dig down into the details of it you realize just how messed up the system is and how this is just one other compounding of okay we're going to try and solve one sinful decision over here that's built on a whole bunch of other sinful foundations with another thing that's not really solving the issue you know we're not we're not much closer to justice after this decision than we were before. I mean, let's be really clear. It was a win for conservatism. It slowed down evil. It's not much of a win if you're saying we're trying to head in a direction that's right. It doesn't give you – It's an, not a win for righteousness. It's, it's right. just a win for conservatism. And, and, and I'm not saying in the end that the net result of some of the things out of this won't be – there will be positive things that come out of this. But in the end – if your only intent is at any given motive to slow down evil, if that's all you care about, it creates a tangled mess. And I, you know, I, 
I'm not even sure how much it will slow down much because, I mean, Colorado has been very aggressive and they have every reason to believe that they'll continue to be aggressive. And I don't think this decision will slow them down much. I don't see much coming out of this that actually slows down the Civil Rights Commission. Sure. Yeah, I mean, for for certain people, for certain groups, I mean, because, you know, the, the you know, the, they're they're cutting off segments you know, sure. So it, but they're always going to look to see where they can they can push the segment as far as possible because Colorado is being very aggressive in this, and I don't think this this decision will stop their aggression. Right, but you but you look at like uh, you know some of the not not the most recent one, but some of the older abortion decisions um, where there were states that were somewhat aggressively going after abortion clinics and the decisions. On the one hand, they you know didn't stop them from continuing to go after them, but they did limit how much they could do it and limit you know certain either limit or allow certain things for them to real that did have like in the number of abortion clinics it did have a big impact on that, but it didn't stop certain states from still continuing to go after them. And it's just important to recognize like in something like this what what is what Colorado's actually doing. What they're not trying to do is to stop the the person doing this website what they're trying to do is intimidate other people so they won't stand up that's why they right after the masterpiece cake shop did it they immediately went after him again like the next year they attacked him again because the point isn't they knew he wasn't going to back down but the point is to scare everybody else so they go i don't have a million dollars two million dollars to fight this so that they can drive the behavior that they want and so instead of the legal system being about justice, it becomes about coercion. And this is very common in this country, and that's what that's what Colorado's doing. That's what they're doing with these laws. That's what they did with the Masterpiece Cake Shop. I mean, they used it as a means to influence not the person who's getting in the news, but the thousand people that changed their decision because they didn't want to be in the news. But, yeah, but <clears throat> I mean, the counterpoint to that is the Supreme Court having this decision you know, is an encouragement to go going the other direction. Now, it doesn't mean that Colorado still isn't going to try to go after you, but it is saying we're not going to be like Canada where you can, you know, I don't know the exact laws in Canada, but this is something they're, that Canada... They're worse than ours. Right, this is something that Canada, Canada would be right behind Colorado, even further than Colorado, saying, you know, you have to make, you know, you, you can't speak out against homosexuality, all this type of stuff. The Supreme Court is saying, we're not Canada, you can't, you can't go that far. And, and so it's, it is an encouragement you know, to some people, it's an encouragement to people to to fund the cases because sure. you know, a lot of these people are, are, I mean, most of these people aren't funding the case, this type of case on their own. It's like a, you know, donated right. type thing. And so it's encouraging, you know, those, uh, you know, lawyers and people funding the lawyers to, to, to go after it because they, they might think they might get a victory on the next case. And I don't want to make it sound like, I mean, when I heard the ruling, I was glad that they ruled that way. Right. I mean, so I'm not, you read the decision. <laughs> I mean, but reading the decision definitely Definitely makes you go. You just you start to realize all the complaints. It's like, man, this is a mess. And I and again, I just know what they did to Masterpiece Cake Shop, Masterpiece Cake Shop, because they immediately turned around and went after them again. I mean, so to think that Colorado is going to feel very constrained by this, none of them are going to suffer because of this. And so they don't care if they go after it, and they don't care if they violate the spirit of what was just decided. It just doesn't. It just doesn't have any effect on that. Because there's a sense of it, like you said, even if, they, if they're willing to spend the money, then for a lot of businesses, it doesn't matter whether you'll win in the end. Masterpiece Cake Shop, I'm pretty sure, went out of business. I mean, it didn't matter. Right. 
because they still won. So they won the decision, but so what? And other people are looking at the reality of what happened to the cake shop and not the decision because the biz- a business owner is going to go, do I want to suffer with this? Do I want to take this risk? Colorado's eager to go after something that's clearly the, the Supreme Court just spoke to it and they still come after them immediately afterwards. It's about coercion and intimidation. They to, to think that the Supreme Court is going to change the attitude of the government or change the attitude of the people is to look at the Supreme Court and assign it much more power than it has. But didn't we do like a whole episode on Obergefell and how that Obergefell. changed the and how after that, you know, the, the numbers supporting homosexuality skyrocketed? Right. Like, didn't we do an episode about that? Yeah, but I already said that. But it wasn't skyrocketed. No, it was it, that. It was that it went and and it went from fifteen percent to twenty percent to twenty five percent to thirty percent to thirty five percent to forty percent over a twenty year period, and then Obergefell was assigned and jumped to fifty five percent. So they get out in front of a parade that's already moving. Where the shift was was among people who were who it was among Christians. Was where a lot of the shift was because the Christians, Christians in and, quotes, right? That and because they looked at it and they said, "Ah, the law before even the law was standing between them and something that culture wanted to do, and now the law wasn't standing between them, and so they went along with it." And that's what he's saying. In this case, they're looking at it and going, "The law is trying to stop us from doing something that we know is right." The next case we wanted to cover was Biden versus Nebraska. Summary of this one is the Secretary of Education does not have authority under the Higher Education Relief Opportunities for Students Act of 2003, HEROES Act, to establish a student loan forgiveness program that will cancel roughly $430 billion in debt principal and affect nearly all borrowers. In doing this, they didn't really address the issue on the table. The issue on the table is, will there be any constraint on executive orders? Because Biden basically issued, President Biden issued an a executive order that he knew was blatantly illegal. He had said it was illegal before. Nancy Pelosi said it was illegal. All of them said it was illegal. And, and I'm not sure the Supreme Court could address it. It's really the Congress that needs to address it. But in the end, the Supreme Court shouldn't even necessarily be speaking to this. The Congress should have responded because the Congress has delegated the power of the purse to the executive branch. And that's a really dangerous thing because clearly that is not what was meant by the HEROES Act of 2003. That was if you went to the, over to Afghanistan or, or Iraq that, that you, know, you wouldn't have to pay your interest on your student debt while you were gone. That's what the act was for. And now all of a sudden they're forgiving everybody ten dollars or $20,000 for no reason. A very different thing. I would argue here in a lot of ways the Supreme Court is uh, in some ways it's protecting its own turf because they're like, if someone's going to modify a law, it's going to be us. (laughs) Executive uh, branch's power has grown quite a bit in the last, I don't know how many years to say, but it's been growing for quite a while. And there's just part of, like you said, that 1910 or something. If the the Congress has delegated the purse to the executive branch. The Supreme Court is like, well, you're not also going to let them change laws, which is exactly what was being done here. And when you and when you look at what their ruling is, is what they were very much clamping down on is you're not allowed to change. The, the law was written to, let's say, you can do this. This is completely beyond the scope of your authority. You cannot change. I mean, they were, they were very much specifically attacking the limitations of the executive branch. And so in a sense, they were addressing executive orders to the extent that they could. 
like you said, there's only so much they can do. They can really just go, you can't change the law. You're not allowed to. That's not your, it's not your purview. I mean, it seems what was happening here was just games were being played where the president was saying, well, I'm going to announce I'm canceling student debt and get everyone excited about it who has student debt. And then the court's going to overrule that. And then and they're not going to be mad at me. Mad. Yeah, they're, they're going to be mad at them. And then I'm going to say I'm going to do it again under a different law. And then the courts are going to overthrow, overturn it again because he knows that it's unconstitutional. He knows that it's illegal. But he knows that there's no real limit on him saying he's going to do it. And then the court over overruling him. And, yeah, the the bigger problem that I have is that we look at the Supreme Court as the, the final arbiter of these things. And that's not our system. I mean, that is completely contrary to our system. The reality is he had to find $430 billion someplace, and if it's not coming out of his pocket, he stole it, right? And the Congress didn't say, you're stealing this money, which is they, he was stealing money from appropriations that the Congress gave. It's not like you can just make these things up. Well, well so, he's, 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 he's canceling debts, right? Right, which means that that money has to be paid. The fact that the Supreme Court got involved shows how broken our system is because the Congress should have gone. We're the only ones that can appropriate money. And if you're going to play these games, we'll shut down the Department of Education. But until people care, because the Congress is only responding to the population, until the people care, I mean, the fact that we've set and we've done this with Roe versus Wade, we've done this in so many ways that we're saying the Supreme Court is our last great hope. And that's completely contrary to what the design of the system is. I mean, I mean, it's really is an impeachable offense. I mean, it's way worse than the stuff that Trump was impeached for. Right. On a whole different scale. Yeah. You try to steal a half trillion dollars. And that was a low estimate. They're 430. Some of the estimates were as high as $800 billion. He was, stole, was trying to steal almost a trillion dollars. To buy votes. To buy votes. And that's what he did. And instead of being impeached for it, instead of going, you can't do this, you have to work through Congress. And and it's important, as I read this decision, that's all I could think about is just how broken our system is that, that we need the Supreme Court to decide these things because it means the Congress isn't doing it. The only one that, you know, all these things, they're supposed to run through Congress. That's why it's Article One of the Constitution. Right. And instead of going, you can't do this, and this is something that you could be impeached for, a lot of the politicians went – well played, Mr. Biden. You know what I mean? Is it was it was seen as a fairly crafty political move. He got but, what he wanted, and what were his penalties? And, but it's true because I mean the Senate is you know Democrat controlled, so they could you know they couldn't impeach him. I mean they could impeach him, but it's not going to do anything, right? Except that it you know, impeachment is in there, even in the case where they aren't going to be convicted of the impeachment, because the reality is that that would raise that would raise visibility on a lot of these things. And, hey, he's taking money from a lot of people. He's stealing a lot of money from a lot of people that paid back their student debts, didn't go into student debt in the first place, decided to do vocational training, all these things. And he's stealing that money, right? The GI Bill. So what? You've convinced people to join the military, but then you're going to give away, which part of the part of the benefit package for joining the military is they pay for your education. Now you give away free education to other people. It's It's just... It's violating so many things, breaking so many things. It's overturning so many parts of the system. And nobody's going, wait, the president has to stop doing this. And I don't think anybody wants for the president to stop doing it, which we should just recognize how much, how destructive that is to our country and will continue to be.
And it's not all the president's fault that there are however many hundreds of billions of dollars of student loan debt out there in the first place. I mean, you can look at the various state and federal government actions along the way that have led to the massive inflation and costs for higher education that get us into the point where all of a sudden, okay, now here is a problem that we have to solve. I mean, it is a real problem, but this this is not the way to solve it. And, and we're really talking about the tail end of another one of these cascading, massive, let's solve a sin, a sin, a sin with another kind of sinful approach. And, right. and, and you can cut the tuition of every college in this country by 50% overnight. All you do is say, unless you can prove ROI like you do for any other loan, we're not going to loan you the money. And all the tuitions would drop and the schooling would be the same. Because all they're doing is building out infrastructure. They're building out more. I mean, it used to be the ratio of administrators to to professors. That ratio has gotten to be three to one. It used to be like one to four. I mean, it's like we've just gone insane in our public because so much of it is fed at the public trough. And all you have to do is say, hey, banks, give loans if you want to. And the tuitions at all the universities would immediately just like collapse because – you're not getting a good return on investment. No bank's going to invest on any of these. Nobody's going to loan you money when you're you're spending $100,000 for a year in school, maybe at Harvard or maybe for a few schools, but not the vast majority of them. It's a really bad investment. And if you want to know more about it, we have a whole episode on the subject on student loan forgiveness. I mean, one other thing that to watch the games that are played, if you will, is that they can play a lot of games with with whether they have jurisdiction or not. So even in this case, the Supreme Court wanted to speak. So they're, they were kind of stretching pretty far to get so that Nebraska had jurisdiction. I mean, they were standing to standing to, to sue. sue. So because basically Nebraska had a, a uh, semi-government organization that did student loan things that they said that that was going to hurt them, that that and so somehow they tie that back to say, therefore, there's a state right here to be involved in the suit. And I mean, it's it's pretty convoluted logic to get them so that they could all of a sudden speak to the issue. And they play that game a lot. And two other people that sued in relation to it was the Department of Education versus Brown. And there, these people who are going were actually affected by these decisions because the executive branch, this was much more directly related to the executive order and how that that was not legal. The other their response there was the respondents lack Article Three standing to assert a procedural challenge to the student loan debt forgiveness program adopted by the Secretary of Education pursuant to Higher Education Relief Opportunities for Student Act of 2003, the HEROES Act. And so what they said was basically, well, that wasn't in the act at all. So the president did that. And if he does that with the Department of Education, he has to do certain procedures that would give them the ability to complain about how it was done so that you know, and that was basically their argument that they were negatively impacted because their debts weren't going to be forgiven as much as they should have been. And basically in that case, they go, well, just a normal citizen, they don't have any right to complain. They don't have any jurisdiction here. Only a state has jurisdiction. And so even though what caused the suspension of, of it to go to the Supreme Court was actually this case and not the other case <laughs> – Right. So they froze it. The, so it was this case that caused them not to forgive all the debts. But yet when it gets to the Supreme Court, they go, oh, we don't, you don't have any standing to be able to, to 
you know, participate in this suit. So they drop that and then they decide Biden versus Nebraska, which they kind of through convoluted means got to the fact that they had stand that Nebraska had standing. Which I mean, the fact that. You know, the fact that a lot of the decisions are based on a lot of really detailed wording of laws isn't necessarily a bad thing because you don't, you know, they, they do it all the time too far. But as much as possible, you don't want the Supreme Court just to be saying things that they think are bad and saying stop doing it. You don't like the like a president just giving people billions of dollars. You don't want them to do that. You want them to be interpreting the law and applying the law. So, you know, I, I haven't read these decisions but you know it is it is a good thing and and that's one thing is when you look at all the at the decisions you know a lot of the ho- high profile ones are liberal versus conservative justices and then you know there's some of some of them are swing but a lot of the decisions are not that way i mean a lot of them are unanimous a lot of them are just you know very different breakups of who is siding with who so you know a lot of it is based on their you know interpretations of the wording you know, and I'm sure some of them are deciding it more based on the law and or more based on their opinions, you know, their political opinions. So but, but you know, a lot of it is not as partisan as if you just read the headline cases. Right. And if you read, look at Biden versus Nebraska, what they're doing is they're looking at that Heroes Act and going, no, this is not what was contemplated. So they were looking at the, the language. What what. I think it's worth considering about Department of Education versus Brown is that what they're actually doing there is they do this jurisdictional argument and this argument about standing to say, well, you can't bring this case. And they play a lot more games with that than they, it becomes very subjective as to who they can do it with. Once they actually start to interpret the statute, they actually did something different, and they've been doing that over the last decade or so, where they've, instead of just saying, well, the Department of Education says that this said that he could forgive the debt, and we're supposed to just basically take that as the default position, the court's actually starting to push back against that because they decided that that was too much of a transfer of power to the executive branch. And so that's what they did in this, is that the Department of Education said, yes, we can forgive this according to the HEROES Act. And they went, no, that might be your opinion, but that's not our opinion as opposed to their default position has been for some time now, is that basically if that's what the executive branch said, that's right. that's the way they we go. They give well, them the benefit of the doubt. They the don't question the their doubt. interpretation. I mean, yeah. Yeah, they, well, they, 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 we will question it, but they give them the benefit of the doubt. Right. And a lot of times they, 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 question, they don't question things that are very questionable. So it has to go pretty extreme. But they've definitely been moving back from that, and I think they did that with Biden versus Nebraska. The concern I have more is, you know, they get into these standing arguments where it gets to be pretty arbitrary to the point where they, like with Trump in the 2020 election, before the election, he tried to bring suits and they said, you don't have standing because you haven't been damaged yet. And then afterwards, they bring he brings suits and they go, you don't have standing because this has already been certified. So you can't have any standing. And so they make you should it have brought it earlier. Like, you should have brought it earlier. And, and so. We just have to recognize this is a game that courts play that is pretty dangerous. But And on the other hand, it's pretty dangerous to just say anyone can sue sure. for anything because you don't want people to, to just be suing you because they don't like you and you haven't actually hurt them in any, you know. So they've actually way. set a standard. Those elements are a concrete and particularized injury that is, two, fairly traceable to the challenged action of the defendant, and three, likely to be redressed by a favorable decision. So in those things, if you take it, at the absolute, it makes sense, but 
most of the time they take it, it becomes very subjective in their application, like it was here. It's very, very subjective. What's a particularized injury? Well, it kind of depends on what they want it to be and whether they want to think that it's an injury or not. You know, and so it's a, it's a means that they get to choose cases. But, you know, at some point it ha- it is somewhat subjective because on the one hand, the president just ignoring the law to give away billions of dollars is something that the Supreme Court should overturn. On the other hand, you Well, know, I would argue Congress should have overturned well, it yes, first. Yes, but also the Supreme Court. But on the other hand, how can you say that you are hurt by the president giving someone else money? Now, you can say it, but it's not like he took money from you, like from your bank account. So it, it, in some way it is a bit of a stretch. I mean, they would basically effectively, they would have to open up the fact that almost all government, a huge amount of government spending is injury. And that's why they're not willing to do it. I mean, you know, I mean, because they would be opening a door and it's a door that realistically should be open in one sense because we've allowed people to do, we have allowed the federal government to do things that are clearly not allowed by the constitution. But they're basically saying at this point, those things have been adjudicated by a representative system. They've been allowed, they've been, I mean, and and there's a little bit of truth to some of what there's, you know, I mean, and that this is part of the problem is, is people always look to things. They always want things to get fixed in one fell swoop later. And things are never fixed in one fell swoop later. In the end, they're, they're fixed by chipping away at evil, by turning back from things, by actually turning away your thinking away from things, by turning, by tearing down strongholds. I mean, what scripture talks about is the stronghold being these ideas that we've, these lies that have been built up into this tower and actually tearing down the lies one by one until the thing collapses. And that's as close to a fell swoop as you get is when the, the, the idea that's been held up finally collapses. One of the big problems that we've done as a, as a country and as the church in particular in a lot of ways is we're looking for the big win. We're not looking for for advancing, right? We're not looking for the war that's battle after battle after battle, which is how most wars are. We're looking for the nuclear bomb that goes off. So instead of actually dealing with the fact that we have all these politicians that don't want to control the person, the Congress, instead we just hope that the Supreme Court will step in and stop it. You know, instead of like recognizing that the system requires an act of people for it to work. And what we decided instead is that, you know, the people that have high student loans, well, if Biden will just write a letter that says that we all have $20,000 knocked off, we'll be fixed, instead of actually doing the work of governing ourselves. And right now, we're a broken country because we don't want to do the work of governing ourselves, which takes real work. And for the two people who are still listening, if you think that was contradicting earlier where we said this was maybe a win for conservatism, the distinction we'd make there is – in the case where we said it was a win for conservatism, it wasn't actually moving forward in a direct – it wasn't actually tearing down something so that you changed the thought. It was just this simple ruling in the middle of something where you where you upheld all the previous wrong thinking. You just use it in a way to prevent a particular evil. But isn't that chipping away? I don't think so. I actually think whenever you – whenever It's, you it's reducing the accrual, I would say, rather than chipping away. Right. Because it's it hasn't – change the direction very much you're just tapping the brakes you're not turning the car around right right and that's what we're saying is is you actually have to start turning the car but just only in a chippy way (laughs) we're fine if you slam the brakes on something i think that's fine he's just saying we're always expecting the car to stop by slamming the brakes and usually the way god stops the car by slamming the brakes is 
he just he turns you over to a farm you know he right. sends you into into subjection to another people that's slamming the brakes i mean and there's a point where that's a good thing for god to do clearly but it's not something that you want to sit there and go that our goal is to get god to turn us over to a foreign power the next case is groff versus DeJoy, and the synopsis is Title VII requires an employer that denies a religious accommodation to show that the burden of granting an accommodation would result in substantial increased cost in relation to the conduct of its particular business. So this was a USPS worker who was fired because he wouldn't work on Sunday. And I think in the, if you look in the background of the case, he had – he worked for the postal service. He had, you know, he didn't want to work on the Sabbath. He was able to make that work for a period of time. He trans he transferred to a rural area, but whenever the postal service started allowing Sunday service, this ended up causing real problems. And the management there basically said that because he was getting off on Sunday and other people weren't, it was causing morale problems and was causing other issues, and he was let go. Right, and when he started. It was because of Amazon starting later with deliveries so that there was no idea of working on Sunday when he started. Right. And so he got forced into working on Sundays. And the only reason they took the case was actually because of how people had twisted an earlier case. Because in the end, they found against him. They found that the USPS had every right to fire him. But what they did, there was one line in an earlier case that basically said that de minimis stand was the standard that had to be met which actually wasn't what the decision said at all, right? This was like one line taken out of context. It was a badly written line. But because of that, that was the line that all the courts were using to basically say the only way you have to accommodate a religious, you know, a, a sincerely held religious view was if it cost you nothing. That's right. the only time that you had to do it is if it cost you absolutely nothing. And so they took the case to go, that's not true. But in this case, it would have cost them too much because they're all unions, unionized, and he didn't have seniority to say, I'm not going to work on Sunday. So he had to work long enough to do it and to flip the seniority system on its head, which the law, you know, Title VII very explicitly says that seniority is a, a reason, you know, that's beyond, that's, a, that's an undue hardship to, to cause them to actually, you know, flip the seniority system on the union. So it was basically they were affirming the power of the union in saying that, but you can't just say that for any reason at all that you can ignore people's, you know, sincerely held religious beliefs. I mean, it's an interesting one to point out because this is a very common thing that happens all over the place where people can make a very nuanced argument and people end up remembering this one. I mean, we do it a lot with, people do it a lot with scripture. We'll have mm -hmm. a whole, you know, a whole chapters of a Bible that Paul writes and there's this one phrase and it, that phrase gets pulled out, interpreted in a different light than the whole rest of the chapter, and that's remembered. And so, I mean, it's it's actually arguably that's what this whole podcast is <laughs> one after another. So you can see as you read as you read the as you read the opinion that they were delighted to address this. Right. You know, what I mean, it was it was like you know we are very the court has it's been fifty years since the court has had an opportunity to address this and this has needed to be addressed and we're very glad to get the opportunity to set the record straight on this. Right. Wasn't this you, one unanimous nine to nothing? They were clearly upset with the idea that I think in the Hardeman decision or whatever that it 
like four times they said it had to be a, a substantial burden. And then one time they say it's a de minimis standard and therefore they go, it can cost nothing. That's the only way that you can actually enforce it. So they, they were pretty disturbed that all the courts were accepting as a precedent something that the court, even in the original decision, did not say. Right. This was housekeeping for them, in a sense, right? This was telling all the lower courts, you haven't been doing what you're supposed to do. Pay attention. When we talk, you need to listen. And, I mean, you know, it's interesting because, like, in the law in North Carolina for non-federal employees, because, of course, federal employees are exempt – the law in North Carolina is if you go and when you're hired and you say, I don't work on the Sabbath, that they can't fire you for that for the rest of your time of employment there. And so, again, we can we have a tendency to look at the federal government as the end all be all. But the reality is states can pass very different things, very different decisions than what this decision was. It can have real impacts, real impacts on the church and real impacts on religion. Right. I mean, I'm thinking about it from the perspective of verses that this happens with. It's not a specific verse, but it reminds me of when Paul writes about the guy who, the church that's rejoicing over the guy who's uh, sleeping with his father's wife. You know, I mean, it's not a particular, but Paul's kind of like going, you've gotten the wrong impression about grace. (laughs) You know what I mean? And he's going, you know, you heard me talk about grace. Yes, grace is wonderful, but grace has caused you to delight in sin. And I, you know, I mean, and it, so I mean, when you, when you get to the point, you should really understand this is a really, really common thing. And so, I mean, it's, yeah, I, I was, it was very interesting reading it and, and recognizing things with my own children where you hear them go, but you said, you know, and, and, and I'm sure Dan is thinking of, I'm sure Dan can think of many times where his employees have remembered the one phrase he said that could be construed this way and ignored the hundreds of times that he said other things. Human nature is like this, and we should just really understand it. The last case that we wanted to cover was Moore versus Harper. This is one that's relevant to us because it pertains to redistricting of uh, election districts here in North Carolina. An excerpt from this decision states, The Elections Clause does not vest exclusive and independent authority in state legislatures to set the rules regarding federal elections. And so they held multiple things, but this is the one that, you know, there's a, a theory going out that based on the on the Constitution that is very specific, that it assigns the language of determining federal elections to the legislature of each respective state, that that means that the the state's courts can't oversee that. Because in other places, they talk about the state making the decision. In this case, it's very explicitly the legislature. The state legislatures. The state legislatures. And so the Supreme Court is basically rejecting that argument entirely and very explicitly rejecting that argument. I mean, it, U.S. Constitution Article 1, Section 4, Clause 1 says, The times, places, and manner of holding elections for senators and representatives shall be prescribed in each state by the legislature thereof. But the Congress may at any time by law make or alter such regulations except as to the places of choosing senators. And so, you know, we talk about them reading things precisely but then they get to this constitutional question and they have no interest in reading it precisely, like none. And they basically make an argument, going back to Marbury versus Madison, where that says, of course, courts have ultimate jurisdiction over what laws are legal and what's not legal. And so they're basically doing this thing where the Constitution was written very explicitly to remove it from the courts, state courts. And they're putting it back into the purview of state courts, contrary to the Constitution, because 
they're really protecting the power of courts. I mean, you read the decision and it's about their power and the power of state courts. And where but, is it? But, you know, but isn't there, you know, another side to it, too, which is if the state constitution specifies certain ways in which the state has to, you know, rules for how they do this and then they don't follow the rules, who's supposed to enforce the constitute, state constitution? I mean, I mean, the. It seems pretty clear from the Constitution that if anybody has the right to do that, it would – the number one, one, what the Constitution says is who has the right to do that is Congress. Congress doesn't need to sit, seat them. So Congress is supposed to say you did it in an unlawful manner, so we're not going to recognize these. That's the power of Congress to determine who's seated. But if you look at our system that now says the federal government has the right to do it, then what the NC state legislature was arguing is that the federal government is the only one that can adjudicate it. And the courts in North Carolina had decided multiple times, and it gets very convoluted how it all works, but they, they even decided multiple times that they didn't have the right to decide it, and then they decided it anyway. So it's, it's a very convoluted question where they're in the North Carolina Constitution explicitly doesn't give them the right to adjudicate it. It says that they can only have the right to adjudicate those things that are given to it by the Senate and the House, the North Carolina legislature, to do it. So the Supreme Court made a decision that was contrary to the NC Constitution. It's not the first time. Not the first time, but they're doing it. So they gave a power that the Constitution of North Carolina explicitly did not give to the Supreme Court. Or and they don't court. have the authority to do that. They don't have the authority to do I mean, that. And I mean, and, and this is something, I mean, this is worth pointing out to people because there are a lot of people who go, once something's been decided, it's decided. No, the answer is, is no, you should reject things that were unlawful. You should reject things that were done that were, you know, it's if the Supreme Court made a decision. And I'm not saying that you get to go now, we get to go and do something because of it. But there is a point where North Carolina should recognize this and go, they don't have the authority to make this decision. And that would be a very reasonable decision by the, them to The make. appropriate authorities in North Carolina yes. are the ones who should say, they not, don't have not the, you and me. Right. In, we in, should elect people who would make that decision to, to ignore that determination by them. Because in the so end— who's going to put this on their, their plank yeah, in, <laughs> right. in their campaign platform? It's going to be a super popular thing. I will overturn this. But I mean, but it should be, and it, it's a it's been an ongoing issue for many years because in North Carolina, the Supreme Court for a long time was far more liberal than the legisla- legislature, like far more liberal. So they kept overturning things that the NC legislature is going. If this was in the federal courts, it would be accepted. It's just because that this is political gerrymandering that the Supreme Court in North Carolina is trying to do. So that's why this gets to be an issue, because they're going, if it wasn't these liberals that that are on the Supreme Court in North Carolina, there's no way this would be rejected by the federal courts, which is why they were trying to push it so it would be in the federal courts rather than the state courts. Because they knew, I mean, the state courts are overturning everything. It didn't matter. They were just trying to get Democrats elected. It was a very, very partisan court. And that's that's shifted. But I mean, that's what these things are coming out of. And But part of the problem is it's all the same. You're looking at the wrong place for solutions. You're looking to the Supreme Court to sol- solve it or the, or the, you know, there's a supermajority of Republicans in, in North Carolina legislature. Why aren't they like actually dealing with some of these problems? Because well, they've been problems for a long time. I mean, but I mean, to be fair, I mean, the, the, the decision was somewhat moot because they had dealt with certain things. 
So, so I, I believe they were already the North Carolina Supreme Court had already allowed them to redo the maps, if I remember correctly. So, part of when we look at these Supreme Court decisions, we just have to, you know, one of the reasons to look at them is to see how broken our system is. Because I do think our system is very broken, and it's broken mostly, I think, because citizens don't want to take their responsibilities seriously. And I'm not saying we are either. I don't. I don't mean to be standing up here and going, "We're doing it," but but I just look at where we are going as a country, and and tapping the brakes isn't going to help. The Supreme Court occasionally standing in the middle of the road saying "stop" isn't going to help. You're just going to be like Colorado, and they'll just keep swerving around. And that's that's what we should expect with these decisions. This has been a really interesting exercise for me just in preparing for this podcast to to read about and think about these cases because you read the headlines and you think, okay, yeah, that one was a win, that one was a loss, and, and you just kind of put them into these categories. But then when you actually dig down into it, you get to see all of that. Oh, my goodness, this is a really messy system. And there's no clear wins out of this. There's nothing where I can say, oh, yes, this was this was a case where you can say justice was done all the way down and something is moving in the right direction now. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a good reminder to us. I mean, in the area where you have authority, do better than this. In the area, you know what I mean? Like if, in your home, if there are times where you'll make rules and you'll make rules and you'll make rules and things get really, there are times where things can get really convoluted because sin causes things to get convoluted. And there's times where you need to stop and go, you know what, we're going to, we're going to fix some of this. We're going to, I mean, as, as a parent in your own home, in your church, there are things where you can see things just starting to pile up and there's times where somebody needs to go, wait a minute, we need to deal with the fact that this is not just. We're making a decision off of an unjust. I mean, we need to address our own. We need to do some housekeeping. We need to do some cleaning up because God says it should start with the people, with His people. And if His people don't even understand how to think about these things, there's not a lot of hope. And especially, yeah, they don't have examples of what good authorities look like in most cases. And the church isn't saying, "Fathers, you have to be good authorities." Right. And until the churches say, fathers, you have to be good authorities, and there's examples of what good authorities look like, you're not going to get better authorities in the state government. You're not going to get them at the federal government. You're, you're going to get arbitrary decisions. You're going to get fickle decisions. You're going to get people dealing with their power and their grabs of power because this is what they – this is what people are seeing in their homes because it bubbles down. This is what people are seeing in their businesses. And so we just need to recognize that that – to fix the higher levels of authority, you have to start with the lower levels. Right. And right now in North Carolina, the Republican Speaker of the House, it's been revealed that he's been having a long-term affair with a woman who's been ma- who was married and that he, you know, used – that according to everything that's come out, that he used his influence and his and his authority to pressure her into having a relationship with him. And, you that know, suit was all dropped, though. Right. Well, that's what I mean. And it's the, or settled. The alienation settled. of affection suit brought by the woman's husband – was settled, but right. But he's, means, he's not going to resign. He he's he not going to deny this down. Right. He right. right. And he's not. Well, he denied. He did not did he, But he didn't deny. He didn't deny fornicating. He, he denied knowing that he was committing adultery with her. Right. Which I mean, and, well, and no, 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 no. He didn't. No, he didn't. He said he thought they were separated, oh, which is still right. married. Yes. Yeah. Good right. point. And he had very good reason to believe that they were not separated during that time period. I mean, like seeing them at events that he was at and talking to them. I mean, so I'm just, and my point is, is just 
it's really gotten bad what we've accepted. He's he's a, he's a Republican. Yeah, Republican, yeah. and, and he's not going to have to step down. He's not going to have to resign. There's not going to be any censure. I, don't, I mean, it's just. And if you look at the percentage of people in the the U.S. Congress whose children are estranged from them, who's who have been divorced, who have been caught in affairs, I mean, Republicans, Democrats, the numbers high on both sides. There's very little idea that you should elect moral people, and if you elect immoral people, you get bad authorities. When right. the wicked rule, the people groan. And so we look at this and we go, the people are groaning. Sure, that's exactly what we should expect. Because if we don't have a higher expectation of authorities, but that starts locally. Right. Just think about the one of the more mundane cases at like a moral level with the the student loan forgiveness. Think about all the people out there who, for whatever reason, have massive student loans. They don't know what to do. Am I going to be paying these back? Am I not? When's this moratorium on my payments? You know, you're in a groaning state, not just because you've got this loan that you've got to pay back, but now you don't even know the terms under which you might be paying back, you might not. You know, and then you didn't have to make payments for two years just because somebody arbitrarily you know, it's, because it's Trump and it, Biden, it's not one or the other. And, and think about like if you were if you were a father that were ruling your household that way, and and we weren't talking about student loans, but you're talking about doing the dishes. You realize how frustrated your children would be in those kinds of circumstances. You know, so so like you're saying, clean those up. In the first place, yeah. right. This is uh, this is you know after the federal government bought a bunch of people into that slavery. I mean, the groaning goes right along with that. Right. Well, they yeah the education system they sold they sold them something that was a bad product. They sold them something that. But it's was, okay. Now they're encouraging people not to go to college and not to do these loans anymore. I mean, they're oh. No, never mind. I'm sorry. No, they're not doing any of that. Right. They're not solving the loan problems either. They're not like they're solving not the stopping. Education problem. They stop trying to shovel or they're not stopping trying to shovel money into the universities, which just raises tuition. And it's basic economics that they want to reject and understand that we look at the, the elite institutions and they're all liberal and they're all, you know, they're they're feeding a political system, both the Republicans and the Democrats, that is contrary to the most of the people's view in the country. We're getting more and more liberal. That's being heavily funded by government, which is why the tuitions are going up so much. And it's a political position that most people aren't close to the communist philosophy that most professors have. If you want to, if you want to put your finger on the core theological problem at the root of all of this, it's that the church has failed to declare God as God, has failed to present the fear of God before the nation, and because of that. The government feels free to act as God, right? Because and the Supreme Court, because there's a vacuum for a declaration of who God is. The government's willing to step and say, "Hey, you know what? We'll be God." And Biden goes, "I'm God. I can give away a half trillion dollars." And the Supreme Court goes, "No, we're God. We, yeah." And and everybody's just so we have these to be the leading God, fighting idols, sure. Right. And that's exactly what our government looks like. And who will stand in the breach and, and stop it? And the church is the only one that can. The Bible says in relationship to elders that if he does not rule his own house well, he's not fit to rule the house of God. And we need to start thinking about this for our elected leaders. If we want to have people that actually are good authorities, authorities that are a blessing to the people under their authority, it starts by them having a much better testimony. We want to run right away to, will they give us the handout that we want and not give out the handout that we don't want somebody else to receive? 
instead of saying who will be just, who will be fair, who will be moral. And that really starts by saying, have they been just, fair, and moral in their homes? And that starts in the church because we have to be the ones that testify to what righteousness is, testify to what justice is, testify to, to what what a good authority should look like. So as we look at the problems and we look at the decisions that are made and we look at how everybody's just dancing around the, the edges of the problems and not really solving them, the real solution has to come from the church. Thanks for joining us. This has been The Conquering Truth, a project of Reformation Baptist Church. If you found this helpful, you can visit us online at theconqueringtruth.com and subscribe here or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for watching.